You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. The Snowball Earth Hypothesis proposes that the Earth's surface became entirely or nearly entirely frozen at least once, sometime, sometime earlier than 650 million years ago. Proponents of the hypothesis argue that it best explains sedimentary deposits generally regarded as of a glacial origin at tropical paleo latitudes. Opponents of the hypothesis contest the implications of the geological evidence for global glaciation and the geophysical feasibility of an ice or slush-covered ocean and emphasize the difficulty of escaping an all-frozen condition. A number of unanswered questions remain, including whether the Earth was a full snowball or a slush ball with a thin equatorial band of open or seasonally open water. The Snowball Earth episodes occurred before the sudden radiation of multicellular bioforms known as the Cambrian Explosion. The most recent Snowball episode may have triggered the evolution of multicellularity. Another much earlier and longer Snowball episode, the Huronian Glaciation, which occurred 2400 to 2100 million years ago, may have been triggered by the first appearance of oxygen in the atmosphere, also known as the Great Oxygenization Event. Sir Douglas Mawson, born 1882, died 1958, an Australian geologist and Antarctic explorer, spent much of his career studying the Neoproterozoic stratigraphy of South Australia, 
where he identified thick and extensive glacial sediments and late in his career speculated about the possibility of global glaciation. Mawson's ideas of global glaciation, however, were based on the mistaken assumption that the geographic position of Australia and that of other continents where low-latitude glacial deposits are found has remained constant through time. With the advancement of continental drift hypothesis and eventually plate tectonic theory, came an easier explanation for the glacionic sediments. They were deposited at a point in time when the continents were at higher latitudes. In 1964, the idea of global-scale glaciation re-emerged when Brian Harlan published a paper in which he presented a paleomagnetic data showing that glacial tillites in Salbard and Greenland were deposited at tropical latitudes. From this paleomagnetic data and the sedimentological evidence that the glacial sediments interrupted successions of rock commonly associated with tropical to temperate latitudes, he argued for an ice age that was so extreme that it resulted in the deposition of marine glacial rocks in the tropics. In the 1960s, Mikhail Budyakov, a Russian climologist, developed a simple energy-balanced climate model to investigate the effects of ice cover on global climate. Using this model, Budikov found that if ice sheets advanced far enough out of the polar regions, a feedback loop ensued where the increased reflectiveness or albedo of the ice led to further cooling and the formation of more ice until the entire Earth was covered in ice and stabilized in a new ice-covered equilibrium. While Budiko's model showed that this ice albedo stability could happen, he concluded that it had, in fact, never happened because his model offered no way to escape from such a feedback loop. In 1971, Aaron Fagri, an American physicist, showed that a similar energy balance model predicted three stable global climates, one of which was Snowball Earth. This model introduced Edward Norton Lopez's concept of intransivity, indicating that there could be a major jump from one climate to another, including to Snowball Earth. The term Snowball Earth was coined by Joseph Kirschwink, in a short paper published in 1992 within a lengthy volume concerning the biology of the Protozoic Aeon. The major contribut contributions from this work were, one, the recognition that the presence, the presence of banded iron formations 
is consistent with such a global glacial episode. And two, the introduction of a mechanism by which to escape from a completely ice-covered Earth, specifically the accumulation of CO2 from volcanic outgassing leading to an ultra-greenhouse effect. Franklin Van Hoyten's discovery of a consistent geological pattern in which lake levels rose and fell is now known as the Van Hoyten cycle. His studies of phosphorus deposits and banded iron formations in sedimentary rocks made him an early adherent of the snowball earth hypothesis, postulating that the planet's surface froze more than 650 million years ago. Interest in the notion of a snowball Earth increased dramatically after Paul Hoffman and his co-workers applied Kirchkovnik's ideas to a succession of Neoproterozoic sedimentary rocks in Namibia and elaborated upon the hypothesis in the journal Science in 1998 by incorporating such observations as the occurrence of cap carbonates. In 2010, Francis McDonald reported evidence that Rodinia was at equatorial latitude during the Cryogenian period with glacial ice at or below sea level and that the associated Sturtian glacian was global. The snowball earth hypothesis was originally devised to explain geological evidence for the apparent presence of glaciers at tropical latitudes. According to modeling, an ice albedo feedback would result in glacial ice rapidly advancing to the equator once the glacier spread to within 25 degrees to 30 degrees of the equator. Therefore, the presence of glacial deposits within the tropics suggests global ice cover. Critical to the assessment of the validity of the theory, therefore, is an understanding of the reliability and significance of the evidence that led to the belief that ice never reached the tropics. This evidence must prove two things. One, that a bed contains sedimentary structures that could have been created only by glacial activity. And two, that the bed lay within the tropics when it was deposited. During the period of global glaciation, it must also be demonstrated that glaciers were active at different global locations at the same time, and that no other deposits of the same age are ex in existence. The last, this last point is very difficult to prove. Before the Edikaran, the biostratigraphic markers usually used to correlate rocks are absent. Therefore, there is no way to prove that rocks in different places across the globe were deposited at precisely the same time. 
The best that can be done is to estimate the age of the rocks using radiometric methods, which are rarely accurate to better than a million years or so. The first two points are often the source of contention on the case-to-case -case basis. Many glacial features can also be created by non-glacial means, and estimating the approximate latitudes of land masses, even as recent as 200 million years ago, can be riddled with difficulties. The snowball earth hypothesis was first posited to explain what were then considered to be glacial deposits near the equator. Since tectonic plates move slowly over time, ascertaining their position at a given point in Earth's long history is not easy. In addition to considerations of how the recognizable landmasses could have fit together, the latitude at which a rock was deposited can be constrained by paleomagnetism. When sedimentary rocks form, magnetic minerals within them tend to align themselves with the Earth's magnetic field. Through the precise measurement of this paleomagnetism, it is possible to estimate the latitude, but not the longitude where the rock matrix was formed. Paleomagnetic measurements have indicated that some sediments of glacial origin in the Neoproterozoic rock record were deposited within 10 degrees of the equator, although the accuracy of this reconstruction is in question. This paleomagnetic location of apparently glacial sediments, such as dropstones, has been taken to suggest that glaciers extended from land to sea level in tropical latitudes at the time the sediments were deposited. It is not clear whether this implies a global glaciation or the existence of localized, possibly landlocked glacial regimes. Others have even suggested that most data do not constrain any glacial deposits to within 25 degrees of the equator. Skeptics suggest that the paleomagnetic data could be corrupted if Earth's ancient magnetic field was substantially different from today's. Depending on the rate of cooling of the Earth's core, it is possible that during the Proterozoic, the magnetic field did not approximate a simple, simple dipolar distribution with the north and south magnetic poles roughly aligning with the planet's axis as they do today. Instead, a hotter core may have circulated more vigorously and given rise to four, eight, or even more pole, poles. Paleomagnetic data would then be, would have to be reinterpreted as the sedimentary minerals could have aligned pointing to a west pole rather than the north pole. Alternatively, Earth's dipolar field could have been oriented such that the poles were close to the equator. This hypothesis has been posited to explain the extraordinary rapid motion of the magnetic poles implied 
by the Idia Karen paleomagnetic record. The alleged motion of the North Pole would occur around the same time as the Gaskers glaciation. Another weakness of reliance on paleomagnetic data is the difficulty in determining whether the magnetic signal recorded is original or whether it has been reset by later activity. For example, a mountain built-in mountain building orogeny releases hot water as a byproduct of metamorphic reaction. This water can circulate to rocks thousands of kilometers away and reset their magnetic signature. This makes the authenticity of rocks older than a few million years difficult to determine without painstaking mineralogical observations. Moreover, further evidence is accumulating that large-scale remagnetization events have taken place which may necessitate revision of the estimated positions of the paleomagnetic paleomagnetic poles. There is currently only one deposit, the Latina deposit of Australia, that it was indubitably deposited at low latitudes. Its depositional rate date is well constrained and the signal is demonstrably original. original. Sedimentary rocks that are deposited by glaciers have distinctive features that enable their identification. Long before the advent of the snowball earth hypothesis, many neoprotozoic sediments have been interpreted as having a glacial origin, including some apparently at tropical latitudes at the time of their deposition. However, it is worth remembering that many sedimentary features traditionally associated with glaciers can also be formed by other means. Thus, the glacial origin of many of the key occurrences for Snowball Earth have been contested. As of 2007, there was only one very reliable, still challenged datum point identifying tropical tillites which makes statements of equal ice cover somewhat presumptuous. However, evidence of sea level glaciation in the tropics during the Sturiton is accumulating. Evidence of possible glacial origin of sediment includes drop stones. Stones are drop that were dropped into the marine sediments, which can be deposited by glaciers or other phenomena. Varves, annual sediment layers in periglacial lakes, which can form at higher temperatures. Glacial striations, formed by embedded rocks scraped against bedrock. Similar striations are from time to time formed by mud flows or tectonic movements. Diamesitites, poorly sorted conglomerates. Originally described as glacial till, most were in fact formed by debris flows. 
It appears that some deposits formed during the snowball period could only have formed in the presence of an active hydrological cycle. Bands of glacial deposits up to 5,500 meters thick, separated by small meter bands of non-glacial sediments, demonstrate that glacials melted and reformed repeatedly for tens of millions of years. Solid oceans would not permit this scale of deposition. It is considered possible that ice streams such as seen in Antarctica today could have caused these sequences. Further, sedimentary features that could only form in open water, for example, waveform ripples, far-traveled ice raft debris, and indicators of photosynthetic activity can be found throughout sediment dating from the snowball earth period. While these represent oases of meltwater on a completely frozen earth, computer modeling suggests that large areas of the ocean must have remained ice-free, arguing that a hard snowball is not plausible in terms of energy balance and general circulation models. There are two stable isotopes of carbon in seawater, carbon-12 and the rare carbon-13, which makes up about 1.109% of carbon atoms. Biochemical processes in which photosynthesis is one tend to preferentially incorporate the lighter carbon-12 isotope. Thus, ocean-dwelling photosynthesizers, protists, and algae tend to be very slightly depleted in carbon-13 relative to the abundance found in the primary volcanic sources of Earth's carbon. Therefore, an ocean without photosynthetic life will have a lower carbon-13 to carbon-12 ratio within organic remains and a higher ratio in the corresponding ocean water. The organic component of the lithified sediments will forever remain very slightly but measurably depleted in carbon-13. During the proposed episode of Snowball Earth, there are rapid and extreme negative incursions in the ratio of carbon-13 to carbon-12. This is consistent with a deep freeze that killed off most or nearly all photosynthetic life, although other mechanic me mechanisms such as calthrate releases can also cause such perturbations. Close analysis of the timing of carbon-13 spikes in deposits across the globe allow the recognition of four, possibly five, glacial events in the late Neoproterozoic. Banded iron formations are sedimentary rocks of layered iron oxide and iron pore chert. In the presence of oxygen, iron naturally rusts and becomes insoluble in water. The banded iron formations are commonly very old and their deposition 
is often related to the oxidation of the Earth's atmosphere during the Paleoproterozoic era, when dissolved iron in the ocean came in contact with photosynthetically produced oxygen and precipitated out as iron oxide. The bands were produced at the tipping point between the anoxic and oxygenated ocean. Today, atmosphere is oxygen-rich, nearly 21% in volume, and in contact with the oceans, it is not possible to accumulate enough iron oxide to deposit a banded formation. Only extensive iron formations that were deposited after the Paleoproterozoic, after approximately 1.8 billion years ago, are associated with cryogenian glacial deposits. For such iron-rich rocks to be deposited, there would have to be anoxia in the ocean so that much dissolved iron as ferrous oxide could be accumulated before it met an oxidant that would precipitate it as ferric oxide. For the ocean to become anoxic, it must have limited gas exchange with the oxygenated atmosphere. Proponents of the hypothesis snowball earth argue that the reappearance of banded iron formations in sedimentary records is a result of limited oxygen levels in an ocean sealed by sea ice, while opponents suggest that the rarity of the banded iron formation deposits may indicate that they formed in inland seas. Being isolated from oceans, such lakes could have been stagnant and anoxic at depth, much like today's Black Sea. A sufficient input of iron could have provided the necessary conditions for a banded iron formation. A further difficulty in suggesting that banded iron formations mark the end of the glaciation is that they are found inter interbedded with glacial sediments. Banded iron formations are also strikingly absent during the Marinone glaciation. Around the top of the Neoproterozoic glacial deposits, there is commonly a sharp transition into chemically precipitated sedimentary limestone or dolostone meters to tens of meters thick. This cap carbonates sometimes occur in sedimentary successions that have no other carbonate rocks, suggesting that their deposition is a result of profound aberration in ocean chemistry. These cap carbonates have unusual chemical composition, as well as strange sedimentary structures that are often interpreted as large ripples. The formation of such sedimentary rocks could be caused by large influx of positively charged ions and would be produced by rapid weathering during the extreme greenhouse following 
a snowball earth event. The carbon-13 isotopic signature of the cap carbonates is near 5%, consistent with the value of the mantle. Such a low value is, is usually or could be taken to signify an absence of life, since photosynthesis usually acts to raise the value. Alternatively, the release of methane deposits could have lowered it from a higher value and counterbalance the effects of photosynthesis. The precise mechanisms involving, involved in the formation of cap carbonates is not clear, but the most cited explanation suggests that at the melting of the snowball earth, water would dissolve the abundant CO2 from the atmosphere to form carbonic acid, that which would fall as acid rain. This would weather exposed silicate and carbonate rock, including readily attacked glacial debris, releasing large amounts of calcium, which when washed into the ocean, would form distinctively textured layers of carbonate sedimentary rock, such as a abiotic cap carbonate sediment can be found on top of the glacial till that gave rise to the snowball earth hypothesis. However, there are some problems with the designation of a glacial origin to cap carbonates. Firstly, the high carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere would cause the oceans to become acidic and dissolve any carbonates contained within, starkly at odds with the deposition of cap carbonates. Further, the thickness of some cap carbonates is far above what could reasonably be produced in relatively quick deglaciations. The cause is further weakened by the lack of cap carbonates above many sequences of clear glacial origin at a similar time and the occurrence of similar carbonates within the sequences of proposed glacial origin. An alternative mechanism, which may have produced the Doshantu cap carbonate at least, is the rapid widespread release of methane. This accounts for incredibly low, as low as 48% carbon-13 values, as well as unusual sedimentary features which appears to have been formed by the flow of gas through the sediments. Isotopes of the element boron suggest that the pH of oceans dropped dramatically before and after the Marinoan glaciation. This may indicate a buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, some of which would dissolve into oceans to form carbonic acid. Although the boron variations may be evidence of extreme climate change, they need not to imply a global glaciation. Earth's surface is very depleted in the element iridium, 
which primarily resides in the Earth's core. The only significant source of the element at the surface is cosmic particles that reach Earth. During a snowball Earth, iridium would accumulate on ice sheets, and when the ice melted, the resulting layers of sediment would be rich in iridium. An iridium anomaly has been discovered at the base of the cap carbonate formation and has been used to suggest that the glacial episode lasted for at least three million years, but this does not necessarily imply that a global extent to the glaciation. Indeed, a similar anomaly could be explained by the impact of a large meteorite. Using the ratio of mobile cations to those remaining in the soils during the chemical weathering, the chemical index of alteration. It has been shown that chemical weathering varied in a cyclic fashion within a glacial succession, increasing during the interglacial periods and decreasing during cold and arid glacial periods. This pattern, if a true reflection of events, suggests that the snowball Earth bore a stronger relevance, resemblance to the Pleistocene Ice Age cycles than to a completely frozen Earth. In addition, glacial sediments of the Port Askeg Tillite Formation in Scotland clearly show interbedded cycles of glacial and shallow marine sediments. The significance of these deposits is highly reliant upon their dating. Glacial sediments are difficult to date, and the closest dated bed to the Portaske group is eight kilometers, stratigraphically above the beds of interest. Its dating to six million years ago means the beds can be tentatively correlated to the Sturden glaciation, but they may represent the advance or retreat of a snowball earth. the mechanisms of snowball earth. The initiation of a snowball earth event would involve some initial cooling mechanism, which would result in an increase in the earth's coverage of snow and ice. The increase in the earth's coverage of snow and ice would in turn increase the earth's albedo, which results in a positive feedback for cooling. If enough snow and ice accumulates, runaway cooling would result. This positive feedback is facilitated by an equatorial continental distribution, which would allow ice to accumulate in the regions closer to the equator, where solar radiation is most direct. Many possible triggering mechanisms could account for the beginning of a snowball earth, such as the eruption of a supervolcano a reduction in the atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases, such as methane and or carbon dioxide, changes in solar energy output, or perturbations of the Earth's orbit. Regardless of the trigger, initial cooling results in an increase in the area of Earth's surface covered by ice and snow and the additional ice and snow 
reflects more solar energy back into space, further cooling Earth and further increasing the area Earth's surface covered by ice and snow. This positive feedback loop could eventually produce a frozen equator as cold as modern Antarctica. Global warming associated with large accumulations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over millions of years, emitted primarily by volcanic activity, is the proposed trigger for melting a snowball Earth. Due to the positive feedback for melting, the eventual melting of the snow and ice covering most of Earth's surface would require as little as one millennium. A tropical distribution of continents, perhaps counterintuitively, necessary to allow the initiation of Snowball Earth. Firstly, tropical continents are more reflective than ocean, open oceans, and so absorb less of the sun's heat. Most absorption of solar energy on Earth today occurs in the tropical areas. Further, tropical continents are subjective to more rainfall, which leads to increased river discharge and erosion. When exposed to air, silicate rocks undergo weathering reactions which remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The released calcium cations react with the dissolved biocarbonate in the ocean to form calcium carbonate, a chemically precipitated sedimentary rock. This transfers carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, from the air into the geosphere and, in steady state on geologic timescales, offsets the carbon dioxide emitted from volcanoes into the atmosphere. A paucity of suitable sediments for analysis makes precise continental distribution during the Neoproterozoic difficult to establish. Some reconstructions point towards polar continents, which have been a feature of all other major glaciations, providing a point upon which ice can nucleate. Changes in ocean circulation patterns may then have provided the trigger of Snowball Earth. Additional factors that it may contribute to the onset of the Neoproterozoic snowball include the introduction of atmospheric free oxygen, which may have reached sufficient quantities to react with methane in the atmosphere, oxidizing it to carbon dioxide, a much weaker greenhouse gas, and a younger, thus fainter sun would have emitted 6% less radiation in the Neoproterozoic Normally, as Earth gets colder due to natural climatic fluxions and changes in solar radiation, the cooling slows these weathering reactions. As a result, less carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere, and the Earth warms as the greenhouse gas accumulates. This negative feedback process limits the magnitude of cooling. During the cryogenian period, however, 
Earth's continents were all at tropical latitudes, which made this moderating process less effective. As high weathering rates continued on land, even as Earth cooled, this let ice advance beyond polar regions. Once ice advanced to within 30% of the equator, a positive feedback could ensure such that the increased reflectiveness or albedo of the ice led to further cooling and the formation of more ice until the whole Earth is ice covered. Polar continents, due to low rates of evaporation, are too dry to allow substantial carbon deposition, restricting the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide that can be removed from the carbon cycle. A gradual rise in the proportion of the isotope carbon-13 relative to carbon-12 in sediments predating global glaciation indicates that CO2 drawdown before the snowball Earths was a slow and continuous process. The start of snowball Earths are always marked by a sharp downturn in the carbon-13 values of sediments a hallmark that may have attributed to a crash in biological productivity as a result of the cold temperatures and ice-covered oceans. In January 2016, it was proposed a shallow ridge hypothesis involving the breakup of the supercontinent Rodinia, linking the eruption and rapid alteration of hydroclastites along shallow ridges to massive increases in alkalinity in an ocean with a thick ice cover. It was demonstrated that the increase in alkalinity over the course of glaciation is sufficient to explain the thickness of capped carbonates formed in the aftermath of snowball earth events. Global temperatures fell so low that the equator was as cold as modern day Antarctica. This low temperature was maintained by the high albedo of ice sheets, which reflected most incoming solar energy into space. A lack of heat-retaining clouds caused by water vapor freezing out of the atmosphere amplified this effect. Now we have breaking out of the global glaciation. The carbon dioxide levels necessary to unfreeze Earth have been estimated as being 350 times of what they are today, or about 13% of the atmosphere. Since the Earth was almost completely covered with ice, carbon dioxide could not be withdrawn from the atmosphere by release of alkaline metal ions weathering out of silic silicous rocks. Over 4 to 30 million years, enough CO2 and methane, mainly emitted by volcanoes, but also produced by microbes, converting organic carbon trapped under the ice into the gas, would accumulate to finally cause enough greenhouse effect to make surface ice melt in the tropics until a band of permanently ice-free land and water developed. This would be darker than the ice and thus absorb more energy from the sun, initiating a positive feedback. Destabilization of substantial deposits of methane hydrates 
locked up in low latitude permafrost may also have acted as a trigger and or strong positive feedback for deglaciation and warming. On the continents, the melting of glaciers would release massive amounts of glacial deposits, which would erode and weather. The resulting sediments supplied to the ocean would be high in nutrients, such as phosphorus, which, combined with the abundance of CO2, would trigger a cyanobacteria population explosion, which would cause a relatively rapid reoxygenation of the atmosphere which may have contributed to the rise of the Edicarian biota and the subsequent Cambrian explosion. A higher oxygen concentration, allowing larger multicellular life forms to develop. Although the positive feedback loop would melt the ice in geological short order, perhaps less than 1,000 years, replenishment of the atmospheric oxygen and depletion of the CO2 levels would take a further millennia. It is possible that carbon dioxide levels fell enough for Earth to freeze again. This cycle may have repeated this until the continents had drifted to more polar latitudes. More recent evidence suggests that with colder oceanic temperatures, the resulting higher ability of the oceans to dissolve gases led to the carbon content of seawater being more quickly oxidized to carbon dioxide. This leads directly to an increase of atmospheric carbon dioxide, enhanced greenhouse warming of Earth's surface, and the prevention of a total snowball state. During the million of years, cryoconite would have accumulated on and inside the ice. Psychrophilic microorganisms, volcanic ash, and dust from ice-free locations would have settled on ice covering several million kilometers. Once the ice started to melt, these layers would become visible and coloring the icy surfaces dark to help accelerate the process. Ultraviolet light from the sun would also produce hydrogen peroxide when it hits water molecules. Normally, hydrogen peroxide is broken down by sunlight, but some would have been trapped inside the ice. When the glaciers started to melt, it would have been released in both the ocean and the atmosphere, where it was split into water and oxygen molecules leading to an increase in atmospheric oxygen. The arguments against the hypothesis is evidence of a fluctuation in ice and melting during snowball earth deposits. Evidence for such melting comes from evidence of glacial drop stones, a geochemical evidence of climate cyclicity and interbedded glacial and shallow marine sediments. A longer record from Oman, constrained to 13 degrees north, covers the period from 712 to 545 million years ago. 
a time span containing the Sturitan and Moranoian glaciations and shows both glacial and ice-free depositions. There has been difficulties in recreating a snowball Earth within global climate models. Simple global climate models with mixed layer ocean can be made to freeze to the equator. A more sophisticated model with a full dynamic ocean failed to form sea ice at the equator. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.